You're listening to Never Sleeps Network. This episode of Speech Bubble is sponsored by Harry Tarantula, where you can get 50% off graphic novels and trade paperbacks for the month of November. That's manga, art books, and all the graphic novel classics you love, like Watchmen, Dark Knight Returns, anything that Leon has, he'll give you a great deal. So go on down to 3456 Young Street, get your 50% off at Harry Tarantula, and tell them Aaron sent you. Hey, fan people. If you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you know I'm always talking about the connection between comics and coffee. It's because I love coffee. I do my French press every morning. I do the pour over. That's why we've teamed with the superheroes at BAM Coffee, bamcoffee.ca. Their roaster, Aaron, is Canadian. He's from Saskatchewan, and he's a geek like us. That's why he's putting his clean, ethically sourced coffee in something called a BAM box. He's combining coffee with the geek swag that I know our listeners are going to love. That's 700 grams or 350 grams of coffee with art prints by local Canadian comic artists, a limited edition mug. I mean, what more could you ask for? If you want to try it, he's giving a special promo code to Speech Bubble listeners, SB15. So go to bamcoffee.ca, type in SB15 at checkout, and get 15% off your first BAM box. Hey, maybe you want to just try the coffee. That's okay, too. He'll send you 150 grams of coffee, and all you got to pay for is the shipping. I mean, that's a pretty amazing deal. So go to bamcoffee.ca and tell Aaron that Aaron sent you. Listening to Speech Bubble, the podcast that goes one-on-one with Toronto's comic book luminaries, with your host, Aaron Broverman. Hey, fan people. Welcome to another episode of Speech Bubble. I am your host, Aaron Broverman. You found us on Never Sleeps Network at neversleepsnetwork.com. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcast needs met. Don't forget to support our sponsors that you heard off the top of the show. Uh, With me today is a great artist. She's actually a Schuster Award winner. She won the Jean Day in 2018. She also won the Spotlight Award at the Doug Wrights. This is Jen Woodall and her comics Magical Beatdown and Marie and the Worrywart, comics about anxiety, were basically the darlings of the up-and-coming indie scene back in 2018. How are you, Jen? I'm good. How are you? Good to meet you. Yes, Uh, you too. One of our former guests, Matthew Daly, I have to give him a shout-out because he recommended you uh, for this conversation, Mm -hmm. and so... Uh, we're really happy to have you in. Thanks. Yeah, Matt is a friend of mine, and he's really great. I'm a big fan of his art and his comics. Yeah, same, same. We were hanging out at the Sidekick, and he he said, if you're looking for uh, 
other female creators to to do on the podcast uh, jen would be great so oh, here nice. you are <laughs> yep i'm here all right so i usually start by asking you sort of what was your early life like how did you you know get into uh, fandom comics that sort of thing um i think i actually got into it uh reading betty and veronica comics uh growing up i'm from brampton ontario so it was like a bit of a smaller city when i was growing up my parents would give me money to go to the corner store to get candy or whatever. And I just started buying Betty and Veronica comics because I really liked the way the covers looked. And then from there, I started watching uh, the animated Spider-Man series in the 90s, the X-Men, obviously Batman. And then I started picking up uh, Dark Horse releases of Oh My Goddess. And that was kind of my big introduction to manga and the comic world outside of Betty and Veronica. And then I just kept reading them ever since yeah i noticed that magical beatdown really has like the magical girl Mm -hmm. uh, manga influence yeah is that from oh my goddess too like if if you're not familiar with oh my goddess what would it be about uh oh my goddess is kind of like a harem manga so it's about this 20 something guy who accidentally calls a goddess hotline and then a goddess named bell dandy ends up living with him and then her two sisters skull and erd come and live with him too So it's not really Magical Girl at all. It's like in that harem genre, which is typically not great, but this is like a better example of it. Uh, No, I I was a really huge Sailor Moon fan growing up. So I uh, was inspired by Magic, by, (laughs) sorry, I was inspired by Sailor Moon to make Magical Beatdown. But I also took inspiration from Akira, an early 90s anime, which is super violent, which I also got exposed to at a very young age because I had friends with older brothers who would uh, show me anime that was not appropriate for my age (laughs) but then it made magical beatdown so I guess thanks so once you got into oh my goddess then you started branching out to Akira and all those other ones yeah exactly I just started like reading as much manga and watching as much anime as I could get on like bootleg VHS tapes what appeals to you about uh manga because I come from a you know superhero comic background but I really liked Sailor Moon too growing mm-hmm. up as a kid. So what is it for you that you that, that really you found appealing about manga and anime? I think for me, uh, I mean, I was introduced to anime before manga because I started watching Dragon Ball when I was really young. And then I started watching Sailor Moon. And I think that it was kind of the first time I saw like a really diverse cast of female characters in an animated show that felt like it was a bit more adult, like it wasn't trying to talk down to me. Like Sailor Moon has such a diverse cast. All the girls are very different personalities and they all get such great character development. So it was like the storytelling and the character development that I really connected to when I started watching anime. And then manga is just even better because it has more time to tell its story. And often the world building is very complex and very intricate. Uh, yeah, I'm a huge manga nerd, so I just love the storytelling that it does. Right, and there's a little bit of like fantasy, but also kind of romance because you had the tuxedo mask. Yeah, exactly. That sort of thing. Yeah, like it's magical girl, it's fantasy, it's a little bit sci-fi. There's romance, like it has a lot of bits and pieces going for it. Right, right. I remember like they didn't introduce like Sailor Venus until like w- until like way later. Like that was like sort of the last character, but I guess. When you get it in English, it's sort of out of order from usually what it is in Japan, right? Yeah. So in the manga, actually, so the Sailor V manga was created before the Sailor Moon manga. Okay. And then she made Sailor Moon and decided to bring Sailor V into the Sailor Moon universe and, you know, was like, oh, this is Sailor Venus. 
Uh, but obviously in North America, we got the anime first, and then Sailor V in the show is kind of this character who becomes Sailor Venus. But if you know, like, the origin of the manga story, you know that she was, like, the original character who inspired the others. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. So did you, were you exposed to, like, the YTV English version first and then went yeah. back <laughs> to watch the Japanese versions? And yeah, stuff? I started watching it on YTV and then I got the internet in my house. And, of course, the first thing I did was, like, build a Sailor Moon website start talking to other Sailor Moon and anime nerds, um, finding, like, the Japanese episodes, the transformation sequence, reading about what was happening in, like, the third, the fourth, the fifth season. So I knew kind of what was coming down the pipeline. (laughs) And most of those episodes I didn't even see until I was in my 20s when they actually translated them into English and we could get them here. Right, right. I think there was, like, a brief... Sailor Moon revival? Like, didn't they try to bring it back in English yeah. for a limited amount of time? I think um, another network got the rights to the fourth season and they translated it. Uh, I was, I think I was older at the time, so I didn't really care that much. Yeah. And the fourth season is like my least favorite Sailor Moon season, so I didn't pay a lot of attention to it. And wasn't there it. like some obscure like live action version too? Yeah, I think there's actually... Um, there might be multiple live action versions, but there is like Pretty Guardian Sailor Moon, which I think has multiple seasons and is super popular in Japan. Right. Yeah. Cool. So you're a total anime manga nerd. You're like on the forums. You mentioned something about like the transformation sequence. Mm -hmm. What is the significance of that? Oh, well, like when I was watching it as a kid, obviously they only translated, I think, the first season and then part of the second season when I was watching it growing up. So I didn't know about like the, you know, Sailor Uranus, Sailor Neptune, Sailor Pluto, Sailor Saturn. I didn't know who those characters were. So when I started using the internet and was reading that there's these other Sailor Scouts, I was like, who are these people? And of course, people were recording little bits of the television show on TV and putting them on the internet so you could watch their transformation sequences, their attacks. Like there was a whole community just dedicated to finding these clips and sharing them with other North American Sailor Moon fans. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. So from there, did your did your love of anime and manga expand? Yeah, it was kind of like the gateway drug that brought me into it. And then I, uh, I used to go down to Chinatown when I was a teenager and I would buy bootleg VHS tapes from uh, the Dragon City Mall and uh, Chinatown Center. And I would just, like, pick up random titles. So that was how I got introduced. That's how I saw Kira. That's also how I saw Magic Knight Rare Earth, Ghost in the Shell, Fushiki Yugi, Tenshi Mayu, like, lots of other things. I would just, like, pick things at random and take them home and watch them and then research them on the internet afterwards. So as your fandom expanded, how did your preferences change? Were you still into the magical girl or did you migrate to other things or you know judge other uh, ones as your favorite like how did it sort of play out i still do like the magical girl genre i mean sailor moon is obviously my favorite uh, and i really enjoy carcaptor sakura but as i got older and got exposed to different animes i definitely i definitely found different genres that i really liked uh, like one of my favorite genres being sci-fi and cyberpunk so i found a lot of really great stuff watching anime through that right ghost in the shell is kind of that right yeah ghost in the shell akira like armitage other things like that nice nice you just like the technology combination or yeah like the setting is really cool the aesthetics are great um often there's like 
Mm, I mean, Akira doesn't really have like a great example for the film, but like Ghost in the Shell has like, you know, an amazing female protagonist, Armitage as well, even though it's like super sexualized, but like it's still great. And I still loved it watching it as a kid. Um, Yeah, it just has so many elements that I don't think I ever saw before. I'd only seen kind of like North American sci-fi up until that point. And it was mostly like spaceships and lasers and space princesses, which is cool. But when I started watching anime, that was when I got exposed to like kind of heavy sci-fi with really complicated themes. Right. And it seems like a lot of manga and anime has like really, you know, fleshed out like female characters like Mm -hmm. really independent like you don't see it very much in in North America to the same degree no I don't think so and I think that was why I started gravitating to it in the first place because it was so different than all the cartoons and the comics that I had been exposed to as a little kid Mm -hmm. cool so from that fandom how did you get into start of sort of making your own comics Uh, well I made (laughs) my own terrible comics when I was a teenager uh, like my own knockoff Sailor Moon characters and my own knockoff mangas. Um, and then I kind of stopped doing that for most of my 20s. And I kind of came back to it in my mid-20s when I started going to TCAF and, you know, discovering zine culture and self-published comics and reading like Optic Nerve and 8-Ball and uh, Dirty Plot, like all these really great indie titles. And that's what really got me interested in comics again. And then I just decided to start like kind of doing it in my own time just for fun. And my friends at the time were self-publishing comics. So when they were tabling at conventions, I just decided like, I'm going to go as well and like sell this like crappy little sci-fi comic I made and like see if anyone likes it. Well, an 8-Ball and Dirty Plot, like those are those are classics. Like mm-hmm. you can just run over those like... I mean, you're those are like the heavy hitters of of independent comics, like mm-hmm. Optic Nerve and you know Dan Klaus and Julie Doucette and all mm-hmm. this sort of stuff. What appealed to you about uh, those indie comics? Well, I mean, the comic store in the city where I grew up really just had manga and superhero comics, so I was never exposed to indie comics. And I think I was just surprised. Well, the art was so great. Like I still love Dan Klaus' art to this day, and Adrian Tomine and Julie Doucette as well. Uh, but the stories were so surreal, but also honest and vulnerable and uh, exciting. I just like had never seen comics like that before that kind of like blended real life with these surreal situations and imagery to kind of drive a bigger point home. So I became really obsessed with indie comics and just started reading as many of those as I could as well. Yeah. And, and Dirty Plot particularly is pretty like honest and pretty like... Yeah, very honest. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Like like she definitely, uh, you know, bears her soul in, in that book for sure. It's, mm-hmm. it's pretty amazing. What was the what was the shop that uh, sort of let you down from an indie uh, comic perspective that you used to go to that you mentioned? That... Oh, um... So there were two comic shops growing up, or I guess there was three in Brampton. There's Stadium Comics, Comic World, and Comic Warehouse. Right. And Comic World and Stadium didn't have that much in the way of indie comics. Of course, back then I didn't know they existed, so maybe I just didn't see them. But Comic Warehouse did have a couple, and I remember being like 20 and picking up like a Jeffrey Brown comic and being like, what's this weird little book and buying it and taking it home and, you know, really liking that. So they would have stuff occasionally. But once I moved to Toronto, when I was a student, I started going to BMV used books. And I remember I found like an old copy of Optic Nerve in there. And I was like, this is amazing. And then I started going there every week to buy old comics. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. So what brought you to Toronto from Brampton? 
I went to Ryerson University for school. Oh, I'm, yeah. a, I'm a Ryerson alumni too. And oh, what so, program? So is Alex. Uh, journalism. Oh, nice. What did I, you take? I took fashion design. Oh, nice. Yeah. I, my RA was in fashion design. Yeah, it's horrible. And <laughs> it just, it destroys you so quickly. It's so grueling. <laughs> I don't recommend it very much (laughs) so you didn't you didn't go to art school or anything like that I did afterwards uh I decided I wanted to be a fashion designer and then when I was in school I was like oh I hate this so then I jumped into costume design so I worked in film for four years after I graduated and then when I started doing like illustrating comics in my spare time I decided oh I really like doing this I think I want to make it my career so then I went back to school to OCAD oh okay cool yeah so when did you sort of start making your own comics? You mentioned that you'd gone to TCAF and saw like a lot of your friends tabling and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. When did, what, you know, motivated you to start picking up the pencil and doing it yourself? Uh, I mean, seeing my friends do it definitely motivated me. Uh, I also used to intern with a cartoonist in the city named Willow Dawson. Oh, I know Willow Dawson. She's yeah. been on the show. Yeah, she's really great. Um, I was her intern while I finished my first college degree and she knew I really liked comics and that I dabbled in them in illustration. And she really encouraged me, you know, to try making comics because she was a very encouraging, supportive voice in my life. Um, yeah, I just decided to give it a shot, I think, in 2000. Uh, 13, I made my first self-published comic. What was that? Uh, it's called 1330, and it's like a short little sci-fi story about a woman being lost in space that has no dialogue. And that was because Willow told me, you know, your first comic, do something without dialogue, because it'll teach you to focus on the pacing and your character. And then once you get better at that, you can move on to comics with dialogue. Right. Mm-hmm. So did it work? Like, did you learn all the things that she... It, thought you would it definitely worked because i did not realize how difficult comics were before that <laughs> i mean like i knew but sitting down to draw a comic is like this is exhausting um and then when i moved on to my next comic which was magical beatdown i had like a much better sense of how to make the story work like how to pace it um and then by that time i had practiced a little bit with dialogue as well were you going to ocad at this time no this was before i went back to ocad okay yeah okay so You'd already started kind of in a self-taught sort of way mm-hmm. doing your own comics. And then yeah. you're like, I want to make this my career. Yeah. I wanted to go back to school more than anything just because I thought it would give me a couple years to focus on making art. Like just going to class, drawing, focusing on making my craft better. And then by the time I graduate, I would be able to like, you know, shift into it full time. And I've been really fortunate that that has mostly is how it worked out. Right. And you work at a comic book store. So yeah, that helps. I mean, people are probably pretty supportive of you making your own comics and stuff, right? Yeah, people are really nice. And I love comics and helping people find great comics. So it's really fun to work in a shop and to recommend things to people. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, what shop do you work in? Do you want to give them a shout out or anything? Yeah, I work at the page and panel shop in the Toronto Reference Library, and it's the best. Nice. You yeah. Should, yeah, you guys should definitely go down there. I pick up my comics there sometimes. Um, so for like Magical Beatdown, was it just like I have this, you know, knowledge base for manga and anime, and I want to incorporate it into the comic that I'm making? Or like, where? what was the gestation of that idea? That was definitely part of it. Um, I just remember the idea came to me very suddenly while I was taking a shower one day where I was like, you know, it would be really fun to make a comic uh, about a magical girl that's really violent and to just print it in hot pink ink. I should do that. 
And then I literally just sat down, I think, the next day and wrote it down and started designing the character. And then I think within a month I had the comic finished. It's really cool because, like, during the the fight scene, which mm-hmm. is which makes up the bulk of the comic, everything is in pink. Why did, why did you make that color choice? I think part of the reason I made the comic the way it was is because... It's always really bothered me the way that manga is split up between like boys comics and girls comics because I think that truthfully there's a lot of overlap between the two genres like they're both really dramatic they both have a lot of action they both have romance so I was trying to make a manga that kind of switched between two genres so it goes from blue which is a you know typically masculine color in air quotes and then it shifts to hot pink which is a you know, traditionally feminine color. And I was just trying to mash these two genres together where you have this magical girl who's really feminine, but instead of having her powers come from friendship or love, she's just like a brutal, violent, overpowered maniac who rips people's arms off. Right, right, exactly. And it's it's funny because the the more violent parts are in the traditional girl color and the more, like, storytelling, more... Uh, subdued parts are in the traditional male color so you're sort of subverting expectations that way also Mm -hmm. or at least that's what i'm trying to do (laughs) exactly um yeah and and it's really cool because it's just it's basically just the fight like that's the whole comic uh i think the humor also comes from like the jarring nature of the of the violence yeah i've had a lot of people tell me uh, well, like people will pick up my comic at shows and they'll flip through it from like the blue to the pink and they're like, oh my God. And they just see like the incredibly gory panels and they're like, oh, I didn't expect that. Or I've had people message me and say, I read your comic and oh my God, it's so violent, but I loved it. Was Kill Bill an influence? Because that it's really what it reminded me of. Yeah, I get that a lot. It actually wasn't an influence, but I do really love the Kill Bill films. Like I saw Kill Bill volume one I think when I was 18 and I have it on DVD and I've seen it like a hundred (laughs) times yeah it's a great movie nice nice and you're just gonna keep doing like these volumes so every time it's gonna be her getting sort of harassed by some dude and beating them up in new and perversely violent ways yeah that's definitely part (laughs) of it I know in the next volume I want to introduce like the other magical girl character who's also the love interest of the main character Uh, And I do have plans for it to, like, go a little bit farther than just, like, the ground that it's retread a little bit. Like, bigger villains, more violence, that kind of stuff. Is there any commentary about, like, how, like, women are treated and that sort of thing? Is there there a sort of, like, reclamation of that kind of thing as well? This sort of empowerment sort of thing? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think as women, we're often told that we're not really allowed to be angry. Like, it's not... A very accepted trait uh, whereas I feel like men if they're angry they're seen as like being aggressive and assertive and that's a good quality but you know I think that as women when we're angry about things that happen our concerns are often not very taken seriously or maybe like seeing an angry woman is unpleasant for people so they don't like it and obviously being catcalled is just like a genuinely horrible experience like a lot of the time you're walking down the street and someone yells at you from a car and you can't do anything about it or someone follows you and you're scared so you want to get away so part of the reason i made the comic is to have that like angry catharsis to be like what if you just <laughs> ripped 
the shit out of that guy who just like touched your ass. Yeah, or happen to have like a bat with nails in it or or something like that. Yeah, too. exactly. So I'm I hope that people get a sense of catharsis out of it when they read it. That's it's pretty awesome and it's quick too. Like I think people. Some creators sometimes get bogged down with, like, the overwhelming nature of the task in front of them. Like, they want to make, like, a graphic novel or whatever. This is, like, a really quick thing. Like, you know, you're you're in it, it's fun, and then it ends, Yeah. <laughs> Was that by design in terms of the commitment that you wanted to uh, put towards it? Yeah, I mean, I didn't have this world built in my head. I just had this very bare idea where... I want to make this story about this magical girl who's violent, who punishes people who harass her on the street. Um, and I didn't really want to, you know, explain, like, why is she a magical girl? Where is this universe that she inhabits? I just was like, I'm just telling the story. Doesn't matter about the logic. It's just she's here. She transforms. She murders people. The end. I kind of like it that way because it's like you're using the tropes. And if people know them, they'll recognize them and they'll yeah, get more out of it. Exactly. And if they don't, it's still it's still the story. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I feel like Sailor Moon has had such a huge cultural impact that even if you're not a Magical Girl fan or even if you haven't watched the show or read the comics, people still have an understanding of what a Magical Girl is. And I think the idea still works on some level, even for people who don't know very much about it. Right. And of course, the Akira influence comes in, like, not just the violence, but like the motorcycle and, and that sort of thing, too. Right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, for sure. So how many volumes of Magical Beatdown are there, is there going to be? Um, so I, I don't know how many volumes there will be in the end. I'm just kind of doing it until... I don't want to anymore. Right. Uh, I'm writing volume three right now. And I imagine I'll probably do like a volume four and five. But beyond that, I'm really not sure. It's just going to kind of depend when I feel like, you know, if making new volumes just feels repetitive and it's not really doing anything to make the series better, I'm just going to stop doing it. And are you planning on expanding the story or is it all always going to be these quick little funny fight vignettes? That'll always be a central part of it. But I am going to expand the story starting in the next volume i have started to like plant a couple of things in volume two to show like there are going to be different characters and maybe some development that'll happen but um obviously when i started the comic i didn't have any plans beyond that it was just like this funny little project i wanted to do and then i did volume two because people seemed to like it and i wanted to expand it beyond just like the basic concept yeah i wanted to talk to you about the reaction it seems like people really love this comic mm -hmm. uh, what's your take on how people have embraced it i mean it's great i'm so happy people like it i didn't think anyone would like it i just really made it for me because i was like i love these things i'm gonna make this weird comic i think a lot of people like it i mean it taps into nostalgia for sure because there's so many people that grew up on sailor moon and car captor sakura or just like weird violent 90s anime um, but I know that a lot of the people that send me messages saying how much they like it, you know, they are like, I just picked up this comic and I got harassed on the street and this made me feel so much better. Thank you. So I think like it does help some people give them a sense of catharsis where you can feel really powerless in a situation where you're being harassed and it gives you kind of like a fantasy outlet to feel better about the situation that you might have experienced. From a technical standpoint, is it difficult to print because it has these splotches of color in it um i mean i'm not the person who prints it i send it to a risograph printer and now the most recent edition has been offset print so it's just about like having your files laid out in an appropriate way 
and telling your printer like, okay, this is, I want this part of the book printed this way and this part printed that way. Um, but I have done risograph printing on my own time and it's not very difficult. There's just like a bit of a learning curve. It's kind of like using a screen printing Xerox machine. Right. Yeah. Cool. That's awesome. So where can people uh, pick up the books? Um, so Page and Panel obviously stocks my books pretty regularly. So does The Beguiling. Um, my publisher is Silver Sprocket, who does have diamond distribution. So Magical Beatdown is available in like most major comic shops. Um, everything else uh, is going to be a little bit harder to find just because it doesn't have that distribution. Uh, I'll sometimes send stock to Telegraph Comics. Um, I'm forgetting this other comic shop, but other independent comic shops I usually keep in contact with and I send them my stuff as well. That's awesome. And it's available online as well, right? Yeah, through the Silver Sprocket website, they have a lot of my stuff or through my own online shop. That's awesome. Um, I noticed too, like, it, it's weird because you were really influenced by like uh, Adrian Tomei and, and Dan Klaus and Julie Doucette. And a lot of like the indie comics, especially in like, you know, the drawn and quarterly vein or the fantographics vein, some of them are distributed by like other artists or other small publishers, like, like, you know, what you're doing. So does it sort of weird you out that you're, that you're sort of, you know, getting your comics out there in the same way that your heroes are, do or are? I guess I've never thought about it that way. Um, I mean, I'm really excited. I have Silver Sprocket always working with me. They go to bat for me for everything and are generally excited about what I make. Um, yeah, I mean, it's great. Uh, I never thought that I would be a published comic artist. I always, you know, went to TCAF and would go to like the No Brow booth and the Drawn and Quarterly booth and be like, oh, man, I love these comics. I wish I could be published someday. But then <laughs> that would kind of be the end of the thought. So it is really nice to have like a small independent distributor who really wants to get my stuff in front of as many eyes as they can. How did you get hooked up with Silver Sprocket? Uh, I actually went to the Small Press Expo in 2015, and uh, Avi, who's the editor, came up to my booth, and they were just super excited about all my stuff. They bought, I think, Magical Beatdown and my girl zine. They took it back to their table, and then later in the festival, they, you know, were asking me, like, oh, would you be down to, like, have this distributed? And at the time, you know, like, this was the first time we met, so I was like, uh, maybe, like, let's talk through email, but... They've been like a joy to work with. Right. And the arrangement is good in terms of the split and that sort of thing. Oh, yeah. They're like a very uh, moralistic publisher, I would say. Nice. Yeah. Cool. That's awesome. Like Magical Beatdown. I really liked it. Uh, I picked it up. It's a fast read. Uh, I highly recommend it. Uh, but there's another book that you worked on, uh, Marie and the Worry Wart, mm -hmm. Comics About Anxiety. And that's about a little bit, you know, deeper subject matter, I would say. Can yeah. you talk about the genesis of that project? Yeah. So I'm actually in a comics collective called Friendship Edition. So it's me and several of my friends who all work in indie comics. And we put a magazine out every couple of years with short comics from each of us. And the first book we did, I did a short comic in it that was kind of like the first Marine Worrywart strip. Right. Because at the time I was really stressed out. I was having bad anxiety and I was like, I'm going to make a comic about, you know, these weird anxious thoughts I have because I can't think of anything else. This anxiety is ruining my life. Um, and then a year down the road, I got a lot of positive feedback from people saying, I love this strip you did. And I was like, okay, well... Maybe I should expand this because I have so much more anxiety where that came from. I could fill like a phone book with it. 
And that was what just made me decide to do the Worry War comic. I get anxiety too. So how does it manifest itself for you? I get a lot of physical symptoms, unfortunately. I get a lot of heart palpitations, chest pain, nausea, headaches, eye twitching, body tremors, like a huge gamut. And then, you know, racing thoughts, unreasonable fears, catastrophic thinking, uh, black or white thinking, like this terrible thing is going to happen. And no matter what you do, it's, you know, you can't help it. And it's just like a horrible roller coaster. What usually sparks it? I mean, it's hard to say because I think a lot of it is in my subconscious and I'm not privy to the worries of my subconscious mind, unfortunately. Um, But, you know, it's I worry about like my friends, my family. If I'm feeling kind of sick, I'm like, oh, my God, am I dying? Like, this is it. I'm about to die. Uh, Or, you know, if I fail at something, it really kind of like rocks my confidence and then it can kind of send me spinning into an anxious spiral. Right, right. Did you have it before like all your life? Yeah, I was like an incredibly anxious kid, which I think is partly why I liked comics so much because it kind of like made me feel better that I was such a weird kid. Yeah, it's sort of a it's sort of a soothing uh, activity, right? Yeah, or just like you know, I have trouble making friends, but I have these comics I can read and I can draw. Right, right, right. So, would you say like your anxiety is more like social or just uh, you know? whatever thought uh, pops into your head at the t- at the time. Yeah, it's not social, really. Uh, I used to have pretty bad social anxiety, but I've gotten better as I've gotten older. It's mostly just like, I don't know, it sounds very pretentious and artistic, but I guess a lot of it is like existential dread or ennui and wondering like, what's the point of everything and being very obsessed with like body sensations and overanalyzing interactions between me and clients or thinking about like my artistic legacy. And it it's just like all these ridiculous big thoughts that I can't possibly fix, but I'm going to think about them anyways. I know that like I definitely overanalyze things a lot mm-hmm. and, you know, my mind starts racing and, you know, I can I can get really anxious to the point where my, my heart starts racing too and stuff. Yeah. And uh, I find, like, as a writer, you get a lot of, like, imposter syndrome, like, no matter how successful you are kind of thing. Is that something you experience, too? Yeah, I definitely don't get it as much as I used to, but I'll definitely still have days where I can't draw anything. And I'm like, this is, you know, garbage. I'm garbage. Everything I've ever made is garbage. And Mm -hmm. then I just usually need to, like, go have a coffee or play Nintendo or something and (laughs) let myself have some downtime. Do you think that making a comic about your anxious thoughts, like, released some of them? Like, was it a was it a cathartic experience? Or, you know, are you are you more anxious now that people know about some of the anxiety that you go through? No, I actually like that people have read it because I have heard from a lot of people saying, you know, this is the way I think. Like, this is how my anxiety is as well. So it's really nice to be like, oh, that's cool. Like... Before I made the comic, I didn't really talk about my anxiety. So hearing other people having similar experiences was really nice. And now that I can read the comic, I can kind of be like, oh, what a silly thing I used to be worried about. Like I have new anxieties now, but those anxieties I put in the comic, I feel like it kind of gave me the distance to process them in a way. And you seem to have hit on, I don't want to say a trend, but at least something that has emerged in comics, you know, particularly in like I autobio and like the independent scene is like people doing comics about 
their their illnesses or their mm-hmm. or you know like the things that they're going through from a mental standpoint mm-hmm. i mean i think tcaf last year had a whole panel on comics and mental illness where a bunch of people had like you know graphic novels about grief and graphic novels about you know disability and things that they that they were going through so it's it seems like it's an emerging genre that you've hit on yeah i mean i'm a really big fan of the graphic uh, medicine genre and i do try to read as much of it as i can we have like a lot of really great books at page and panel that i've taken home and read uh, I do wish there was more, but obviously I think that there is something to be said for people who suffer from various illnesses and how easy it is to like make work about that or if you even have the energy to do it. So I think it becomes like an even more complicated issue where people want to tell these stories, but maybe they don't have like the energy or resources to do it at the time. Right. Um, but I'm always excited when I come across a new comic about mental illness, especially because as someone who like grew up with it and didn't really like understand why my brain was the way it was it's always nice to see those stories out there right right and it's weird because because you set up an expectation like oh you're you're that girl you do comics on mental illness and stuff like what's yeah. the new like if you're not mining your own distressing experiences it's like you're not living up to what people expect of you as a comic creator because i guess people put people in boxes all the time right yeah it is true and there is something to be said for sure that uh comic artists tend to like mine their own trauma for content but i think that's really great in a way because comics are such an accessible medium and i think they can get across ideas that are a bit more complicated maybe to get across in just like images or just text um so i think people who do that i think it's a really brave thing to do because it is kind of harrowing to put yourself out there and to be like i'm really messed up like read all about it in this comic (laughs) exactly and you know mental illness and disability is so misunderstood still yeah that we need more accessible ways to sort of show the world that this is happening right oh yeah for sure and i think like that's what's so good about comics is it kind of gives you the opportunity to kind of step into that person's point of reference or to like kind of vicariously live through them and experience what they go through rather than just having this vague idea of you know oh what someone with anxiety goes through because we all have anxiety it's a basic human emotion but like an anxiety disorder is like its own very specific thing so being able to see what someone may think I hope it gives people some you know, retrospect to be like, oh, that sounds awful. <laughs> like, I didn't think that's what it was like. Did you find it a unique creative challenge, too? Because particularly in the cover, you sort of you sort of visually uh, explain what anxiety is like. Like, you, <laughs> yeah. it looks like what you're thinking. Because, you know, anxiety is something that's so abstract and you you gave it a, a voice through the way that you depict it in, in your drawings. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, for you, was that a was that an intriguing creative challenge to try to take something that, you know, doesn't have a visual component and, and give it one, basically? Yeah. I mean, for me, I just thought about the way my those anxious thoughts feel. And that's what really led me to make the visual decisions that I make. Like for me, my anxious thoughts are, I would describe them as kind of sticky. Like they just stick and you can't think of anything else. You can't shake them. They're just there and they're kind of dominating your thoughts. So making anxiety like a little blob just made so much sense because that's how it feels. Nice, nice. So, I mean, you won 
both the Gene Day Award for self-publishing from the Joe Schuster Awards, which is sort of like the mainstream Canadian comic book awards, and you won the Spotlight Award for the Doug Wrights, which is sort of like the indie comic book awards, both for Magical Beatdown and uh, Marie and the Worry Award. So how did that feel that like both these, you know, major Canadian comic book award uh, ceremonies were honoring you for not one, but two books in, in the same year. It was definitely amazing. I, you know, had a lot of friends who have won awards like Ignatz awards and other things prior to that. And I was always happy for them, but I kind of made my bed like, I'm never going to win those. And that's okay because, you know, not everyone wins awards and that doesn't mean their work is bad. But when I got nominated, I was really excited. And then when I won, I was like, oh, I really should have written a speech. So I kind of fumbled my way through it. But yeah, it's definitely amazing. Uh, I think a lot of comic artists feel like outsiders, even amongst other comic artists. I think it's just an isolating profession that can be difficult. So having validation and appreciation from your peers can be really great to be like, oh, my work is important. People actually like what I make and they're not just humoring me. Right. And you're a year out from those awards. So did it actually help in terms of publishing other things or getting you more awareness or more recognition? Do awards help propel careers, I guess, is, is, my, is my question. Did they help you at all? Uh, I mean, I know I had like a couple of interview requests afterwards, specifically because of the awards. So that was nice. I don't know if it really had like that much of an impact on people seeking out my stuff. Um, I know that year that I tabled at TCAF and I won the Doug Wright, I sold like so many of my books, probably because people were interested because, you know, they want to read the award winners, which is really nice. But um, I, I really don't know if it made like a huge difference. It could be because like they're smaller like festival awards, maybe like an Eisner makes a big difference because you get like a big gold stamp on your book. But I mean, it's really hard to say. I definitely got some benefit from it. But I mean, the most important benefit is like it made me feel really appreciated. And it gave me a sense of validation that, you know, oh, like I'm doing good work. I should keep going. Right. And I feel like I feel like Marie and the Worry Word is pretty groundbreaking. Like it's a it's a book of cultural significance in terms of you know, you're doing something that not everybody is doing, right? So I think I think that's going to definitely stand the test of time for sure. Uh, have you thought about, like, putting, you know, Schuster and, like, Doug Wright award winner on your book and seeing what happens? <laughs> I actually haven't. I mean, when I won the Doug Wright, they gave me stickers to put on my books. So I had, like, a sample one with the little gold sticker on the front being, like, Doug Wright award winner. So that was cool. But, um... I don't know if I would do like a print run of it on the cover. I might like put it on the inside to be like, hey, this book won an award. You should buy it. But I'm not sure. Um, I do want to expand Worry Ward into a graphic novel at some point. So maybe like down the line, I'll think about that kind of stuff more. Yeah, I, th- I think you definitely should. I think it would really be cool as a graphic novel, mm-hmm. especially like from an autobiography perspective. Like I'd love to see like more of you know what you go through and and stuff like that so that's yeah (laughs) (laughs) i mean the unfortunate thing about having an a mental illness i guess like a chronic mental illness is that uh it never really goes away it just kind of changes as you change so those issues i dealt with in the book they're not really the same issues i deal with now (laughs) so it's one of those things where there's constant new material because you're 
brain just comes up with new things to bother you with. Right, right. Yeah. Right. It's sort of a – I think you saw a lot of that in, like, Harvey Pekar and his sort yeah. of anxiety. Mm-hmm. Um, are there – is there anything that you're working on now? Like, what's what's next for you? Uh, well, right now I'm writing Magical Beatdown 3. So that's going to be out in the spring of this year, and we're hoping to debu- uh, debut it at TCAF. Um, I am writing a graphic novel series uh, for Oni, which will be out at some point, but I can't really talk about that very much. Um, and then I just have other projects, like I'm always writing content for the new Worrywart collection, which I will hopefully be able to start next year at some point. Uh, I have other projects on the go, but they're all just kind of like in, you know, half developed stages because I'm just kind of jumping from one project to the other, trying to develop all these things at once. Does it really help that you have like a part-time job and you can like balance, you know, freelance stuff with while still getting like a, you know, regular income and that sort of thing? Yeah. How does that fit into, you know, your professional life as a as a comic artist? Yeah, I mean, it's really good. I mean, obviously, the best thing is, (laughs) I think, for a lot of people who are artists or freelance artists you kind of miss that social element like you're in your house all the time you're drawing and you kind of like don't see that many people so when you go to a party like a month later you kind of are like oh how do I talk to people again so having a job just kind of like keeps my (laughs) social intelligence up and obviously I'm reading all the new comics so I know what's going on out in the world what topics people are talking about. And yeah, from a financial standpoint, it's really nice to have that steady income. So I know like I can pay rent, I can pay for my studio and, you know, freelance kind of covers the rest of it. But when I have months where I don't get freelance, which happens to all freelancers, I can just fall back on my part-time job. Yeah. Does it help your anxiety also to be out in the world? Yeah, definitely. I think part of just dealing with like depression and anxiety is kind of distracting yourself constantly, like keeping yourself busy with work, keeping yourself busy with friends, going to your job, just like trying to have other things that you want your brain to spend its energy on. Do you get any additional treatment for that sort of stuff? Oh, for my anxiety? Yeah. I'm on medication for it and I was uh, seeing a therapist for quite a long time, but it's just been too difficult recently with like uh, how inexpensive it is to see a therapist regularly (laughs) because OHIP does not help with that very much. Yeah, man, that's crazy. Yeah. Uh, Do you have any advice for any other artists out there who, you know, might struggle with their own mental illnesses? Uh, I mean, I think for me, what really helped me kind of get started making the art I really wanted to make is I started really small. I think that a lot of people have this idea, you know, I want to make a graphic novel and they kind of jump into the deep end right away and it becomes very overwhelming, very stressful. And I think people can often feel very disenfranchised and they quit. So I think starting small and kind of getting your confidence up is a really good way to start and to kind of give yourself more uh, momentum to do other things. And then I just think, you know, having a social network that you can depend on is really important. Unfortunately, not everyone has that. Uh, But just talking about your mental illness problems, I think there's so much more awareness about it nowadays that people are a lot more sympathetic than they used to be. Yeah, I I would agree with that Mm -hmm. for sure. And people are still learning, but I think they're they're empathetic and they, they want to learn. You know what I mean? Yeah, there seems to be a desire to want to help and to understand and to 
you know, listen to people rather than just being like, everyone gets depressed, deal with it. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, I'm looking forward to reading your uh, Oni Press project. Uh, I can't wait to see what else you got coming out. Uh, where can people find you on social media for when, you know, that Oni project can be more public and they can follow other stuff that you're doing? Uh, so my Instagram handle is Funeral Beat. So funeral, like the funeral and beat like a musical beat. And then my Twitter is just Jen underscore Woodall and Jen with two N's. It's awesome. Where does the funeral beat come from? It's actually my favorite song by a band called Peggy Sue. Nice. Yeah. That's cool. All right. Well, thanks for coming in. This has been an amazing conversation. Yeah. Thank you for having me. All right. We'll see you next time on Speech Bubble. Speech Bubble, the podcast that goes one-on-one with Toronto's comic book luminaries. See you next time. Never Sleeps Network. This has been a Never Sleeps Network production, executive produced by Alex Ross. For more information and content, visit NeverSleepsNetwork.com. Speech Bubble on Never Sleeps Network is hosted by me, Aaron Broverman, and features audio editing from Armin Zoberi. It has announcements by Craig Mayhem and Sean Ward, with graphical assistance by Brittany Tice.